Hello, I'm Garni Barkajarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today. Welcome everyone to the CNS Journal Club podcast and thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Kimberly Huang and I'm from the Department of Neurosurgery at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia and my practice focuses on tumors. It is my honor today to moderate the discussion of a very interesting article that's coming out in the newest edition of the Red Journal, Hot Off the Presses. It's entitled Neurological Surgery Residency Programs in the United States, a National Cross-Sectional Survey, and it'll be in the March 2024 neurosurgery issue. I think, of course, this, uh, neurosurgical education is always very timely and very pertinent, and so many in our audience will be very excited to hear our discussion today. I'd like to welcome our group and have them introduce themselves. Dr. Nahed, would you like to start? Sure. Uh, thanks so much uh, for including me. My name is uh, Brian Nahed. I'm a tumor surgeon and I serve as our program director at the Mass General Hospital in Boston. Great. Dr. Harbaugh? Hi, uh, Bob Harbaugh. Um, I was the chair of neurosurgery at uh, Penn State for 18 years. Um, Passed that job off a couple of years ago. Presently serve as our senior vice president uh, of our academic practice group and um, chief medical officer at the, the hospital. My um, surgical career was based around cerebrovascular disease and, and neurocritical care. And I've also served as a um, you know, director of our board and presently as the chair of our uh, ACGME review committee. So this article on uh, residency programs um, was close to my heart. I thought it was a great effort. That's wonderful. And Dr. Suarez. Hey, everyone. I'm Alex Suarez. I'm one of the PGY6 residents here at Duke. Uh, my clinical interests are in vascular and peripheral nerve, and my major uh, academic interest is in medical education. So when I saw this um, paper, I got really, really excited and and uh, spoke with Dr. Wong, and we got to select it. So I'm really, really pumped for what this podcast is able to reveal. I agree. So to get into the article, Dr. Nahed, you want to give us a brief summary for the audience to get them up to speed on your article? Sure. Um, so, you know, we, along with a, a number of different programs, um, really wanted to get a cross-sectional study of how training really happens across the U.S. And, you know, Dr. Harbaugh and a lot of amazing leaders have really paved the way for many of us on the program director side to not only understand the ACGME rules, but apply them and really try to apply them for our own programs. And over the many years that I've been on the program leadership side, I've often wondered how many folks are really doing CAST fellowships? How many folks are still doing two years of research? Um, what's the impact it truly has and and where are the trends going? And, you know, it's such a small community. We always have access and, and often do talk to so many different people, but we really wanted to try to figure out a, a survey. And so this survey went out to 117 different programs, asking everything from a range of questions. It went to the program director and program coordinator, and we really followed up with each one uh, that would respond either by email or by calls and ask them to report 
um, and then verified what we could on, on their, their websites and their surveys. And what we found, um, unsurprisingly, is that the standards that are applied from the ACGME really are followed and followed really well from our programs. And yet there is still a little bit of variability in each program. And that variability isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's a great thing because programs have different personalities and all adhere to the rules, but are all adding different aspects to it. So things like an academic stipend, one year of research, two years of research, or what we found is that increasingly more are offering in full to fellowships and opportunities to residents to help define their career early on within those seven years. And so in terms of our conclusion, it was really that this was a great capture of the state of affairs. And our hope is that it sheds light so that it inspires others to do further studies as to what really is an impact of having, let's say, a graphic designer or an academic stipend or in this wave of case numbers and, and how do we manage that? How do we manage FMLA? Um, so we hope that this would be an inspiring paper and one that would actually be a, a serving as a reference. Absolutely, and I agree. It's good that um, things are standardized, but at the same time, they keep their individual personality to the program. That's super important, I think, for applicants to, to feel that. Dr. Harbaugh, um, as our invited guest, uh, we'll start with your questions. First, I'd like to congratulate the authors because I thought this was a real contribution. And as noted, I mean, it really is a snapshot in time of what uh, neurosurgery resident training is, is like. And I thought overall it was very positive. So thanks for the effort. Um, I, I did want to um, ask your opinion about something that, uh, you know, there has been a rapid um, adoption of uh, CAST accredited uh, fellowships, including infolded fellowships. Um, uh, one of the statements in the paper is that, um, you know, these efforts, um, there should be some additional effort on expanding that kind of fellowship offering in residency programs. Uh, I fully concur with that, but I'd like uh, to have you discuss it a little bit, why you think that's a good idea. Absolutely. And, and you know, thank you for the incredibly kind comments. It's an honor to hear your sentiments about our paper, and it makes me feel like you know, hopefully we were onto something. The fellowship training thing has been somewhat controversial in our field in the past, but I think many, many folks have decided that offering an enfolded endovascular or functional or even nowadays spine um, provides that opportunity for residents within those seven years to get subspecialized or additional training and not at the cost of their residency, not necessarily shortening the residency. And so 88% of programs offer some type of enfolded fellowship. And I think that probably speaks volumes because I had thought it was lower before we started this study. And obviously it also speaks to the fact that CAST is doing a great job. 76% of programs are CAST um, uh, accredited. And that really speaks again to not only the interest, but possibly even the future. And I think Dr. Haba, to your point, uh, it, if we are to remain competitive as a specialty and attract the best and brightest students, I think we do need to offer opportunities for folks who are either trying to get more training within those seven years and not necessarily tacking on an eighth or a ninth year, but also to give folks an opportunity to spread their wings in their field of, well, I'm a tumor surgeon, for example, in tumors, and do it in the comfort of their own residency while getting, you know, hitting that fifth milestone and, and, and really expanding and contributing. Now, I think an interesting study would be of those CAS fellowship years, 
what percentage of that is truly clinical and how much of it is research and clinical and how do people spin that? And then the other thing I'd love to know in a future study is, is it always a transition of practice or seventh year? And are those programs preferentially one or two years of academic productivity? And is one of them dropping for it? But I suspect if we look at it and we look at trends, this will probably be closer to 100% in the next many years that programs will offer it to be competitive, but also to offer opportunities. Yeah, no, I think you, you make a, a lot of very good points. Um, you know, one of the things um, that we've noticed is the number of, of CAST uh, accredited fellowships has expanded dramatically. Um, that's actually coincided with an increase in the number of R01 grants that go to neurosurgery departments, the overall academic productivity. So there was a concern, I think, that enfolded fellowships would really adversely affect research. Doesn't seem to be the case. Um, you know, I think the uh, one interesting uh, thing about our specialty is when you look at the range of subspecialties, you know, how different they are, um, and no neurosurgeon practices all the subspecialties anymore. The, the, the era of the general neurosurgeon is gone. And I think we've done a really good job of saying, you know, we want to make sure everybody is trained in core neurosurgery. You get one certificate from uh, the board that, that we identify as neurosurgeons, but our practices are very, very different depending on the subspecialty we choose. And this CAST approach has, has allowed us to keep neurosurgery together while recognizing the reality of neurosurgical practice today. Um, you, you noted in your uh, paper um, that the, the, the only variable that correlated um, with uh, resident academic productivity was uh, resident funding level, but that, that correlation was actually fairly weak. Um, you know, you put a lot of thought into this. Is, is there anything you could think of, something that we might be able to do that would really foster resident academic productivity? Yeah, I, 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 that's a great question. And, and the part of the reason we wanted to ask it was just to start scratching the surface on it. Um, we at, at Mass General uh, still have two years of academic um, time. I, we used to call it, you know, the lab time or research time, but so many people are doing such interesting things, just not in the lab that it's truly just academics. And we wanted to test and see, was there a correlation between having two years versus one year, as you mentioned, CAS fellowship versus not, and, and is there productivity? And it, it turns out that probably the most productive person is as productive as hopefully we all are with even the shortest amount of time versus the longest amount of time. The stipend, I think, is is probably not the fact that it's money, but rather the fact that it's the ethos of the program supporting it. And I think all of us want to change our field, and we're so lucky to be in this field. And you mentioned when you graduate and you are a um, finally board certified, that is not only an incredible honor, but for me, it's the start of your impact on the field and, and ideally beyond the OR. And because the assumption is you are the best in the OR and how do you impact it? And I think the programs that do that best are probably the ones that tend to have some type of academic external um, appreciation, whether it's a research day or in this case, a stipend. But I suspect it's not necessarily the money. To be honest, most of the funding, as you mentioned, 
R1, the T32s, a lot of the really great support, the fact that the national meetings and the board are so uh, supportive of academic productivity, I think probably nationally raises the bar for everyone. And I wish it was a smoke and gun so we all could do that one thing to, to, to train the next academic leaders. But I suspect it's one of those things where if you've got the right mentor in the right space and the, and the, the room to, to do that, then the sky's the limit. Yeah. Now, I think in an era where we've all been pushed to be more clinically productive, you know, uh, look at your work RVUs, um, you know, try to um, uh, accentuate the, the clinical care, the, the fact that neurosurgery has continued to make research a priority in resident training, I think is important and something we need to, to continue. And I, I agree with you completely. I, I think that the the key is if if you have faculty, if you have a program that's really uh, interested in the academic productivity of the residents that that recognize and reward that uh, with money or other things, that uh, will be okay. And and we'll we'll continue to make research an important part of uh, the training of every resident. Um, yeah. And in, I was going to interestingly, it, it, it's not necessarily even a, a requirement. It, it's we're just we've got such amazing folks going into our field across the nation that I'm not sure you have to tell them they have to put out a paper or two every year or force them. But rather, if you pick the right person, and you got the right resources. You know, as you said, Dr. Arbot, the, the magic just sort of happens and um, anything we can do to support it, uh, particularly on the faculty side, I think is a, is a great investment. Yeah, I thought that was a fascinating part of your paper, actually, that, that making requirements didn't seem to matter, that, you know, you you reward people because, you know, if you have somebody who wants to do research, they're going to find a way to do research and, the, the, you know, you can facilitate that. If you have somebody who's really not interested in, in research, forcing them to do something probably uh, wastes everybody's time. But I think most neurosurgery residents recognize that, that research is important um, for the field. And, and so we're lucky that we have such a great group of residents that come into neurosurgery wanting to advance the field, wanting to contribute. So um, it, it helps all of us. One, one overall uh, question about your paper. I mean, um, my impression uh, from the data analysis that you did for sort of the overall tone of the paper um, was that neurosurgery programs are doing a pretty good job. Uh, we maintain high standards, um, but but we do have enough flexibility uh, for each program to give its residents the, the best experience possible with the resources available at that program. Uh, was that your perception after reviewing the data? And I'd love to hear you talk about that a bit. Yeah, I think I think that it really speaks to the um, success of the ACGME, the RC, and frankly our our governing bodies and and representatives, um, and that we can standardize what needs to happen and needs to be achieved by case numbers, metrics, quality. We've got a a, a great board system to ensure that that's met as a faculty, but within the residency, there is that ability that you know what's best at your own home and with the resources that you have, the faculty that you have, the strengths and weaknesses. And, and yes, I think that flexibility and that variability is, is alive and well across the nation. And 
we are so, so lucky to have, as you mentioned, such a brilliant, brilliant folks go into our field and be residents around the country and such devoted faculty in our field. And it's such an open field that I feel like the more flexibility you have to allow somebody to chase their passion within neurosurgery, the more likely we are to keep advancing it as opposed to doing it the same way that I did it or you did it or everybody else did it. Um, and I, I thought that was one of the positive aspects of a, a survey like this, which is there is, you know, the secret sauce really is the secret sauce for each program. And, and it gives the applicant and the resident um, a chance to find what's best for them. And I thought that was a really cool moment um, in with all the standardizations that happened within medicine. It's nice that our field has maintained its strength while also encouraging individuality and, and, and personality. And, and, you know, if nothing, surgeons are, uh, are incredibly uh, personalized. And I think to encourage that even at an early stage is wonderful. Yeah. Well, we just had a, um, uh, ABNS uh, board uh, retreat in uh, Arizona um, last week, and I attended that as the RC chair. And um, you know, at that retreat, I mean, everything about resident training was discussed over a period of days. And um, I had read your paper, but of course, I couldn't talk about it because it's not published yet, and it was driving me crazy because I wanted to use it for reference. Um, but I, I must say the, the overall tone of that retreat matches this paper very uh, closely, that, that by and large, we're in really good shape in neurosurgery, that, you know, we're not perfect. We always have to continue to try to uh, improve our processes, but, but we're doing a really good job. Uh, people come out of the training uh, well-trained, take care of their patients well. So I, I think it's... Um, uh, a good time to be in neurosurgery resident training and a good time to be a neurosurgery resident. Yeah. And, and you also just feel so incredibly lucky to be part of this community that's constantly, you know, self-evaluating and constantly trying to improve. And I think you said it best is we're doing a great job. We're obviously not perfect and can always get better, but it's a pretty amazing group to be part of. It, it really is. I mean, you know, that, that it's, it's easy to be self-congratulatory, but I look at my uh, the people I've met in this specialty and um, continually impressed. So, and I look at the residents coming along, and I think it's only going to get better. So, very very proud to be a neurosurgeon, as I'm sure um, the other people are in this discussion. Mm -hmm. If I could have one final question, uh, sure. it's it's an open ended one, and that is there any message that you would like to deliver about this work? Uh, either where where you see it evolving or anything else. So just take it away. Well, thanks for that uh, open-ended question. I, I think in this era of uh, burnout and uh, too many emails and too many surveys, um, there is a, still a role for reaching out to, you know, the programs around the country and having such a close relationship so that you can figure out what is and what are your neighbors doing and is it better and not necessarily falling in love with your own program. And I think that was one of our goals was to try to figure out what else is everybody doing? Is it really something better? And I hope we get to redo this study in a couple of years again, and we'll probably have different results. And, you know, if we inspire any resident, Alex mentioned that he's obviously interested in neurosurgical education. I would just say my hope is that this creates more people interested in education and the 
the ability and the the gift we have as surgeons to do it every day in the operating room, but also to look at a higher level uh, and, and what are we doing as a field and a specialty to constantly advance not only training, but also the way we train. And I think hopefully this paper captures it just in that one time point, and hopefully it'll keep getting better and better. Well, congratulations. Very nicely done. Thanks, sir. That's all the questions I have for you. Cool. Um, so one of my questions is actually related to um, figure two. Um, I know the um, RRC and, and a lot of the uh, organized neurosurgical groups kind of came out with a one neurosurgery curriculum model that kind of gave a framework for programs to kind of set um, milestones as you kind of progress through residency. Um, with kind of the seventh year ideally being like a transition to practice year, um, I um, I was kind of interested at in the rate of the transition to practice year um, of um, uh, yeah the rate of it. So I was just curious that like from your uh, uh, perspective of things of um, the uptake of transition to practice year, the pros cons, and maybe how you as a program director have kind of organized that, maybe some hurdles to kind of increase the rate of that moving forward. Yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful question and one we we personally are, have uh, been thinking about a lot because our program when I did it had a uh, graduate a little bit early and served as an attending and it was a formative experience and I absolutely loved it. But um, the transition practice year it, it, nationally clearly the numbers are very high. But the question, you know, it, it I think it's a great intro question. I think it needs a better study that uh, really tries to figure out what is considered a transition to practice. That could be a CAS fellowship. It could be a junior attending position. How do you figure that out with the overall requirements of the board? And what do you really achieve? Nobody wants somebody to be on trauma call every night and call that a transition to practice. On the other hand, nothing's better than being an attending with the people who trained you to help make sure that you're kind of finished. Um, I took it as probably more an indicator that uh, programs are not doing two years of research or one year in the middle, but sliding it all the way to the end to give residents the ability to do research or kick off their career or do an attending job or doing a CAS fellowship. Um, and I suspect that number is only gonna get higher. But Alex, I think you hit the nail on the head that we need to figure this out uh, with a little better data. And then more importantly, hopefully looking back at all, and I'm sure that, that CAS folks are doing this, which, which CAS fellowships, are maintained over time, what are lost, and what is the academic productivity of the people within it? Because I think that would be a, a pretty interesting study. But I think as Dr. Harbaugh mentioned, the most fascinating thing is whether you agree with it or not, it definitely has not decreased academic productivity, which if it hasn't, and then why not offer it to everyone, particularly because we're competing for the best students for med schools. And the last thing we wanna do is make training seem longer if we can make it more efficient. Yeah, no, I appreciate your take. And actually, it's funny because Duke was kind of in a similar position where they used to be a six, um, a, just a six year program. And then when they added the seventh year as, you know, as it was standardized across the country, they kind of just plugged it in there. But some other programs maybe were built as a true seven year program and trying to evolve to this transition of practice may be a little bit more challenging for that 22% of folks. But um, all those points are um, absolutely excellent. Um, I wanted to then kind of dive into a little bit of figure three here with the annual academic stipend. I know that that was associated with academic productivity, but um, I wonder if y'all ever saw like a threshold in which that actually, um, like over a certain amount actually increased productivity or if that's something for future direction, because the, the range actually seemed uh, decently uh, 
why there in that uh, box and whisker plot there. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a limitation of the study because it was self-defined as a stipend. So, but yeah, the, I was surprised at the range too because I figured it would be either a, you get it or you don't, and everyone agrees to a certain amount. Um, you know, I, I I would suspect that if um, trends with unionization around the country and 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 sort of blanket statements about what stipends are uh, progress, then that number that that variability will probably decrease. I also think that in some people's minds, supporting uh, academic research means going to an annual meeting. and others, it's helping you with a, a seed grant. and others, it's uh, a postdoc. It, you know, there's so many things that fall into it um, that I think, you know, in some ways, it's not a bad thing that there's that variability because I think every program can do what they can afford. And frankly, the academic productivity of residents are probably better than any other specialty in the in the in in medicine. And so, that's where I, you know, as Dr. Harbaugh was saying, I, I do love that there is some variability from program to program. And I do think we we really do need to trust the program director and the chairs and the faculty that they are adhering to the guidelines, but they they really, uh, and I can speak from my own experience, I think about this all the time. What am I doing today that I didn't do yesterday? And what's the other program down the street or on the other side of the country doing that we can do and how do I make it better and and I think a lot of that comes from our residents and and I hope the more we hear the residents and what they need and the more the board gives us guidance on, on how people are doing when they graduate I think these things will start to find a little bit more narrow but still maintain some gap um, and then my next question is just kind of the impact of COVID on interpreting these da the data um, just because I, I know at our institution, as kind of COVID came down and, and things changed from a financial perspective, things at the, the program and, and resident level obviously uh, felt some of that impact. So can you just comment on maybe um, how which you saw maybe some of the data impacted by COVID and maybe down the road if this were to be repeated five, 10 years down the road, pending no more pandemics, uh, maybe what, what you'd expect to see down the road? Yeah, that that's a that's a great question. I think you know uh, there's no there's no doubt that um, it affected resident training. Right for a while, uh, in person, a lot of the education, even attendance at an annual meeting, was was gone. Um, however, that's if you look at the paper submissions and, and the abstract submissions, they exponentially increased because people were at home and had time. And so I view it actually as obviously nobody would want that again but if if people have time and able to think they can actually start to produce um academic products and innovation and collaborations that they otherwise couldn't it also was an amazing time where we started to realize that technology and a lot of the learning can happen remotely um and you know it's one of those things where it made M&M maybe more accessible to people who wouldn't otherwise go and would just miss it whereas now you can log in and be part of it um it made a lot of the collaborations I do nationally and internationally more possible and plausible. I don't think we saw a COVID effect in our data because a lot of it was just our new norm and this was a little bit you know, on the upswing and the return to normal. I'm not sure it's gonna necessarily change because again, at the end of the day, everybody's gotta graduate with a certain number of cases and a quality and our field does such a good job of ensuring that people graduate are safe and competent. And the academic productivity, I think, that went up has probably come back down a little bit now that everyone's back in the OR and everyone's, you know, running around. But I, again, these are some of the most productive residents in the country. 
and and the most amazing people in the world and you can squeeze them you can give them opportunities i think the byproduct and the end product is going to be the same awesome um i think that was my last uh uh question so i just had a quick comment though about uh we kind of talked a little bit about how the mandatory publications and maybe the impact it could have there is this concept that i find really fascinating called motivational crowding which essentially, if someone's intrinsically motivated to do something, if you start paying them to do it, their performance will actually decrease because the extrinsic motivators crowd out the intrinsic motivators. So I'm just, I'd be curious if maybe for future studies for folks that are interested in this kind of workspace uh, about how that may uh, all, all play a role. But just for food for thought for folks. I'll, uh, Alex, that's awesome. I'll be, I'll be sure to pass that on to your program director. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cook will be very happy to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, can exactly. you imagine yeah. <laughs> trying to uh, organize that study to have extrinsic and intrinsic, you know, measurements? Oh my goodness, so challenging. But but, but you know what's really funny, Alex, that you raise is uh, the educational literature is really rich with a lot of these, um, you know, borderline. It, it breaks into almost the psych aspect of things of how to really motivate. And and I'm super interested in leadership and coaching. And there's so much potential, and yet. The more I look at that stuff, the more I realize that it's actually baked into a lot of the things that our faculty are doing all the time across the nation. And I think we are lucky as neurosurgeons to select for folks who are intrinsically motivated and also are teaching to people who are intrinsically motivated that um, at the end of the day, everybody wants to be the best surgeon. Everyone wants to help out their patient. And so to your point, I think a, a requirement like that sometimes is just like, okay, I'm just going to keep doing it because it's for me, not because of some external motivator. But I, that is an opportunity, I think, for anybody who's seeing this, that I think the educational literature applied to neurosurgery is a huge opportunity for us to define many of the things I think we intrinsically do. Awesome. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, we are getting close to time, so I'll keep my questions brief. I sure. um, actually was just interested, you know, um, I'm a little bit newer to resident education, but for those of you, Dr. Harbaugh, Dr. Nahad, you've been doing this for um, some time. I certainly uh, recognize that a lot of institutional change can be very cyclical um, and probably in education as well, where kind of the same themes can come up time and time again as sort of fads go on in the institution. What um, changes or sort of trends in medical education do you think are here to stay based on, you know, you talked about some of these things like burnout and funding and those kinds of things. What is here to stay in neurosurgery education based on what you've seen in this study or just your practice? Well, let, let me take a shot at that. I, I think from the ACGME level, they're really interested in uh, developing a, a true outcomes-based accreditation system. And, you know, um, the product of the residency program is the neurosurgeon that goes out into to practice. Um, one of the things I think that is going to stay is focusing more on how people actually perform in their practice, not only for their certification, but for their maintenance of certifi certification, their continuous certification. And we have a... Um, project in the early stages right now using the board um, post outcomes data, how people perform early in practice, and trying to link that back to the ACGME uh, data in their case logs. And I think this is going to be very interesting. So I think the 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 thing that's going to stay 
is more and more of an outcomes-based approach to saying this is a really good program because they turn out really good surgeons. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, as technology, AI, a lot of the ability to tie the data points together, um, and as Dr. Harbaugh was saying, I, does, does everyone really need to do X number of subdurals, or can you hit a certain number and then move on to something a little more complex, or 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 do we? And what what does that affect? And you know, the milestones um, and the case number and the metrics are right now our bread bread and butter. But if we could tie that outcomes to it and really understand, not only talk about individuality, if, if a program really has a special sauce and you might not necessarily do as many as the program down the street, but all of a sudden those res your 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 residents are doing a lot more in the operation and learning and, and really contributing and their outcomes are better. It gives us as a field an ability to see what matters. Um, I, uh, the cyclical stuff, I, I, you know, I love that you mentioned that. I think there is, there's, you know, in my career, there's been a lot of, we're going to go through a curriculum and it's going to be based on a textbook to nobody reads textbooks. Let's go to everything online to back and forth. I think same thing with cadaveric and non-cadaveric now, I think simulation, but I think the ability to do things with your hands and to get real feedback, um, you took out that entire glioma or you missed a little bit. And I think the more we're able to do that and ensure that people are learning outside the OR and when they come to the OR really strut their stuff, I think our field will be better. And so I, I think as technology gets better and more realistic, I think we can now start to quantify how great your pedicle screw is in the perfect location or it's a little bit off or you know, you got a gross total resection or you left something that you shouldn't have. I think as we get more critical with that, um, I'd like to see that more across our field across all seven years. Yeah, that's um, those are both really great points and something to look forward to. Well, we are nearing our end of time. Um, I would like to thank our excellent panel and guests for their stimulating discussion. And of course, thank you to our loyal listeners for continuing to support us. We hope you learned something new today to help in your practice. And do remember you can obtain 1.5 CME, which is complimentary to all CNS members. The link to the CME activity is available in the online education catalog at cns.org. And see you all next month. Thank you.